Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Phil Sansom. And with me, Chris Smith. And this week, we meet the people still suffering the after effects of COVID-19, months after catching the virus. These patients weren't ill enough to be hospitalised and they thought they were going to recover after just a week or two. Now, they're on a roller coaster of bizarre symptoms. They're calling it Long COVID. But what is it? Plus, in the news, can children harbour more coronavirus than adults? And a new space mission to Mars gets underway. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, first up, previous studies have suggested that children may be poor spreaders of the coronavirus and may even be less susceptible to catching it. And in this regard, the UK Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty, has called reopening schools a priority and, in weighing up the risks and benefits, described how children are much less likely to come down with serious COVID-19. But a new study out of the Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago suggests that kids may actually play host to significant amounts of the virus. Taylor Hill Sargent and her colleagues were looking at coronavirus genetic material, the so-called viral nucleic acid, inside the noses and throats of their patients and she told Phil what they found. Older children had similar amounts of the pieces of virus, the viral nucleic acid, to adults, and younger children actually had a bit more than the older children and the adults. That's surprising, right? Because kids don't seem to get sick, really, with COVID. So people, I thought, had thought that they just didn't get infected. So actually, and I find this quite interesting in general, is why aren't kids getting as sick as adults? And one of the possibilities was that kids just weren't able to get infected, or if they got infected, they weren't going to be able to sustain replication. And this data argues that that's not the case. Kids are able to get infected and have replication of the virus. Okay, how did you do this? How many kids did you look at? Actually, this was a clinical observation. We noticed that a few of our young kids that had recently been screened just for clinical symptoms had very high amounts of viral nucleic acid. And when we went back and we looked at all the tests that we had done, we found this pattern. So after we controlled for duration and severity of infection, we were left with 145 patients. We had younger children less than five years old. We had children aged five to 17 years old and then adults over 18. So you're comparing young kids, older kids and adults who have had the disease for the same amount of time and are physically the same amount of sick. Correct. How much more virus did the younger kids have than the older kids? So it's hard to measure directly how much more virus the children had than the adults, because what we looked at was just the nucleic acid. Children have about 10 to 100 fold more nucleic acid 
compared to the older children than adults. And other previously published work by other groups have found that about that much nucleic acid correlates to having more infectious particles. Which is quite a, you know, a shock when people thought, oh, these kids aren't going to spread the coronavirus. It's okay to send them back to school. The people who were saying, no, this isn't safe. This is a lot of support in their corner, isn't it? It's an early piece of data that's needed to understand if kids have infectious virus, but we didn't look at actual infectious virus. As a scientist, I always want to be as precise as possible when I'm talking about my data. So I can't say for sure that kids have more infectious virus, but this does argue that it's possible. The big question as well is why aren't these kids as sick as the adults? I find that fascinating. What are kids doing? What's different about their bodies that allow them to be somewhat protected compared to adults? I wonder if studying children will help us figure out how to treat adults. There are several different possibilities. One of the ideas is that it has to do with the receptor for the virus and actually where it's located in children and how much of it there is. Another possibility is the virus just isn't able to get down into the lungs as well, and that could be related to virus, or it could be related to the immune system, because that's the third possibility is that the immune system in children is able to protect against viral infection, whereas in adults, the immune system somewhat overreacts and actually causes damage itself. I think that it's probably the immune system, but that's a a hypothesis still. (laughs) A fascinating result there. Taylor healed Sargent, and that study has just come out in JAMA Pediatrics. This week, the programme is sponsored by Ripple Energy. They're doing something that's unusual and also a first, and they want to share the opportunity with you. And with 20 years' experience in the wind power industry, Sarah Merrick is their founder and CEO. What Ripple does is we enable individual households to own a bit of a wind farm and have the low-cost clean electricity that it generates supplied to their home. Our first project is now open. It's Greg Vather in South Wales. So we're really keen for people to be able to join the project and be part of what is the UK's very first consumer-owned wind farm. Can you tell us a bit about how this business will work, Sarah? Customers become a member of a co-op which owns the wind farm and it's all very, very democratic. It's a one member, one vote. So you simply decide how much of the wind farm you want to own, depending on you know how much electricity you use. Then you can just sign up and join in literally a couple of minutes on our website and you become a member of the co-op and you own your bit of the wind farm. And then we go away and build it. And then once it's operational, you get your share of the electricity that the wind farm generates supplied to your home via the grid. And then the savings that are associated with your ownership are just applied to your bill automatically each month basically so we take care of everything right from you know gathering the thousands of people together managing the build of the wind farm and then managing the relationship with our supply partners so that everyone gets savings they're due applied to their bill straight away how much is this going to cost to build the cost of building the whole turbine is just over four million pounds and then an individual household's share of that if they wanted the wind farm to generate as much electricity as they use each year the upfront cost is around 18 1900 pounds and for that they would get savings of around 25 percent on their electricity bill because the electricity is coming from the grid you still need to pay all the 
grid charges, there's lots of taxes and levies as part of your electricity bill as well. You still need to pay all those bits. It's the electricity part of your electricity bill that you get the saving on. So over the 25 year lifetime of the wind farm, we estimate it's around a 25% reduction on your electricity bill each year for the 25 year lifetime. And therefore, how many years after I've invested is it before I've effectively got my money back in saved electricity? We're expecting it to be around 14 years based on the government's electricity price assumptions. If electricity prices are higher than, than, than those assumptions, the payback is shorter because your savings would increase. If the price of electricity goes down, your savings reduce as well. What happens if I move house, though? Because it's attached to you and not your home. If you move, you just phone up your supplier like you would if you moved home and just say, hey, I've moved. And they just then supply it to your new home. So it's really portable. It goes wherever you go, essentially. You said that the average household investment would be about £2,000. So you must be, if you want to raise four million quid, you must be looking for about 2,000 subscribers. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's it's, um, just over 2,000 subscribers. Because it is limited, we're expecting it to fill up by the end of August. Is that the point of no return where you've got to be in the door by the end of August or the opportunity is, is going to pass? Exactly, yes. Once the wind farm's full, there's no more of it to be bought by anyone. So people need to get in in the next three or four weeks in order to be able to benefit and be part of the UK's first consumer-owned wind farm. And when will it actually become operational? When would I start to see money flowing in to discount off my bill? We're expecting it to be spring next year, sort of April time. It's a relatively easy bill. It's a single turbine, so it shouldn't take very long to construct. People would see savings on their bill from around April 2021 onwards. And this is a first, isn't it? I don't think anyone has actually tried to do this with a wind turbine like this before. Why did you decide to go down this path? It's almost a world first. Having worked in the wind industry for so long, I saw that it was possible for big companies like you know Google and Facebook, they could own bits of a wind farm or a whole wind farm themselves. But it, it seemed really unfair that me as an individual consumer, I wasn't able to actually own what is now the UK's cheapest source of power direct. People want to act on climate change and they want low cost electricity as well. So that's why I set up Ripple to solve that for people. And what safeguards are there so that people who who did decide to invest know that their money is, is secure and that the company for 25 years is going to be there and they're going to get their money back? So the co-op owns the wind farm and they will do for 25 years. Ripple doesn't own the wind farm with the managing agent. So we just bring everything together and make it happen. And if I decide I want to invest more than £2,000, are you taking bigger subscriptions so a person could therefore discount proportionately more of their electricity cost? The most that you can invest would be um, the equivalent amount of the wind farm that would generate your consumption plus 20%. So you're you're owning a bit of a wind farm to get low-cost, clean electricity that you use yourself. So if you have now convinced listeners to The Naked Scientist that this is a good idea, what should they do? So they can join Ripple, just go to rippleenergy.com and you can sign up there. We're expecting it to close around the end of August, so people need to act um, pretty quick if they want to be part of this project. Sarah Merrick, CEO of Ripple Energy, who are sponsoring our programme this week. Now, it's been a big week for space exploration. SpaceX's Dragon Endeavour craft safely returned crew members from the International Space Station, culminating in the first splashdown the ocean has seen in 45 years. And as Ben McAllister reports, a key Mars mission we actually featured here on the programme a couple weeks ago got underway. 
On the 30th of July, 2020, a rocket launched from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida, USA, to begin a seven-month, 480-million-kilometer journey to Mars. Aboard is the Perseverance Mars rover. The rover was launched now as we're in a window known as the closest approach between the Earth and Mars. Because Mars is further from the Sun, it takes about twice as long as Earth does to complete a lap of the solar system. This means that the two planets are at their closest to one another only about once every two years, which is why it's now, or 2022. In some ways, Perseverance is like a slightly more developed big brother to Curiosity, the most recent previous Mars rover. In fact, many of its design, launch and landing features are based on Curiosity, with a few extra new bells and whistles added. The landing process will also be similar. The rover will reach the Martian atmosphere and then have to complete the terrifying 7-minute descent to the surface without any help from NASA. The rover will enter Mars' atmosphere travelling at about 19,000 kilometers an hour and descend in three stages. First, it will deploy an incredibly strong parachute to do the brunt of the work. Then, it will detach from the parachute and employ rocket boosters pointed downwards to counteract the rover's velocity. Finally, the rover itself will be lowered gently to the ground from the platform holding the rocket boosters using what NASA calls the sky crane. In contrast to the car-sized Curiosity, Perseverance is even bigger, has better wheels, and is equipped with new technology, including a fancy rock drill for taking samples of the rocky Martian surface and its own helicopter drone called Ingenuity. If it's successful, it will perform the first powered flight on the Martian surface, Mars' own Wright Brothers moment. It will then be used to help scout locations for Perseverance to visit. But it isn't just the kit which is different. Perseverance also has a brand new exciting mission. A mission all about life on Mars. One major goal is to search Mars for evidence of ancient microbial life. That is, looking for remnants and traces left behind by any small organisms which may have been present billions of years ago when Mars was less dry and more supportive of life. The second major goal is to test a bunch of different equipment and systems for possible future human habitation on the Red Planet. For example, testing a process for converting Mars' carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere into oxygen and testing the suitability of a range of materials for use in future spacesuits intended to support humans living and working on the harsh, inhospitable Martian surface where the temperature rarely gets above zero, abrasive dust storms can be frequent, and the incoming radiation levels, with no ozone atmosphere or magnetosphere to block them, can be lethal. For now, as far as we know, Mars is the only planet in our solar system populated entirely by robots. However, if Perseverance is successful in paving the way for the future human habitation of Mars, it may not belong to the robot overlords for long. Ben McAllister there, he's at the University of Western Australia. We will indeed be very much looking forward to catching up with Perseverance when it reaches Mars in 2021. From Mars now to Moose, before social distancing, when we saw our friends, we might have shook their hand, slapped them on the back, maybe even give them a hug. Cows, though, choose a more intimate route. Unlike us, they lick each other on the face and neck to say hello, at least unlike most of us. Now, new research from the Universidad Austral de Chile has used this licking behaviour to assess the hierarchical relationships between cows in a herd, as lead researcher Gustavo Monti told Eva Higginbotham. 
To be completely honest, in these trying times, I can't really think of anything more relaxing than sitting in a field and watching a group of cows lick each other. And that's exactly what members of the research team did. Every day, several hours a day, for a month. Noting down who licked who, who got the most licks, who got the least licks, and how this changed over time. But the question remains, why? One of the motivations of this study has to do with one consequence which is arising from the way that we are managing cows, let's say in the Western type of production especially. So our systems are very intensive nowadays and as a part of the management, animals are grouped and regrouped very often for different purposes. So this is a problem in the way that because to establish this hierarchy and these relationships for a group of cows, it takes some time. The problem is once they reach this sort of equilibrium or status of recognition, then because of the management, some of the cows or, or even the leader is removed from the group and then new cows or new animals uh, came to the, this group. Therefore, they have to reestablish all the process all over again. And this has happened several times within a year, within a group and within the life of the cows. Previous studies have shown that the constant reshuffling of animals can make them stressed out, and farmers have known for a long time that stress can have a big effect on milk production. The researchers wanted to understand the effects of this reshuffling on the social dynamics of the herd, and realised that they could use licking events as a window into these social dynamics. So, they observed the cows without interfering. We are some sort of big brother, yeah? (laughs) And plugged the data into a computer to perform a modern technique called social network analysis, where each cow is represented by a node, and they could scrutinise the complex web of relationships over time. Kind of like Facebook for cows. It's the same technique that is used nowadays with big data, no? So when Facebook or whatever company wants to evaluate who are your relationships, with whom you are working, or with who you are contact. So it's, it's, it's the same sort of techniques that they were used for our situation. One of the important findings of this study was that unexpectedly dominant cows leaked uh, more than the younger uh, cows into the group. And it seems that this could be explained that the leader in some way is offering this as a sort of action to reward the low-level animals to keep, let's say, the cohesion. I think one important finding that this social grooming in both ways can establish individual bonds between members of a group, and this also enhances the overall social cohesion of the herd. They also found that cows that were new additions to a herd were licking more often and hypothesised that maybe they were doing favours and trying to be friendly to get down with the new group. Interestingly, though, the cows that did the most licking received the least licks in return. This might be because licking another cow is something of an investment, and if you go around licking everybody, it might suggest that you're not going to invest in specific relationships, and so the other cow might not bother investing in you either. Overall, Gustavo and the rest of the team suggest that licking can be used as a positive marker for wellness within a herd. If there's lots of licking, things are stable and everyone is content with their friends. If there isn't, things are going wrong in the complex social and emotional relationships of the herd, 
and Gustavo argues that farmers should be mindful of this important aspect of cows' welfare when reshuffling the groups. Always important to know what mood your cows are in. That was Gustavo Monti, and the work that his team have just published is out in Frontiers in Veterinary Science. Hello, I'm Chris Barrow, bringing you a brand new podcast called Naked Gaming. This is where we look at gaming news. Hideo Kojima, creator of the Metal Gear franchise, was honoured with the BAFTA Fellowship, the highest accolade the organisation can give. Reviews. Away! Why are you cutting everything off? No, that's not how it's supposed to be. No, you wanted a short haircut. Wow. And we also go back in time with Retro Revival. Chalk! Yes, no, Mum, <laughs> you just read it. Naked Gaming. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. For the rest of this program, we're going to be investigating the phenomenon of long COVID, also known as long tail or long haul COVID. It's one of the stranger features of the virus, that a good number of people who have gotten it still haven't gotten over their illness, even months down the line. Patients with severe COVID-19 usually end up in hospital, often in intensive care, and many sadly don't make it. It's no surprise then that those who do pull through may need months of rehabilitation afterwards. But what we're talking about this week are those people who haven't been to ITU and were told their cases were just mild, if they were told at all. And these people had expected to recover in just a couple of weeks. But that doesn't seem to have happened. Paul Garner is one such person. He is an infectious diseases doctor at the University of Liverpool, and he's been vocal about his experience, one which started about five days after he first felt symptoms. My heart was racing. I felt really hot. I felt absolutely exhausted, and I felt as though I was about to pass out. I actually thought I was dying. I thought, oh, my God, Paul, this disease is really bad, and this is it. That was the the start of this sort of 12-week cycle of abuse from this virus. You just didn't know. When you woke up in the morning, you might then have ringing in your ears, or you might have a blinding headache, or you might have pain in your calf, or you might have a cough, or you might have diarrhea one morning, or you might just have a mugginess in your head and not be able to understand what's going on around you. It's really, really horrible. Really? This has been 12 weeks of this? Yes. But the thing about the disease, it changes. After about five or six weeks, I started getting these highs. You actually sleep, and when you wake up from the sleep, you feel incredibly refreshed. And then you go out and perhaps walk a little bit too far, but bang, it comes back and socks you between the eyes. It's not just walking or physical exercise. It's also mental, and it's also emotional. So if you have emotional events, that consumes your energy and makes you unwell. This illness changes your life. Have you had uh, the, any of the coronavirus tests? I had the antibody test done, and that came out positive. And how have doctors generally responded to you with all these symptoms and, and this illness that just keeps going on? Other people have suffered a little bit more than, than I have. A white male doctor, other people have had some of their symptoms somewhat dismissed. And, and part of the reason is the symptoms are 
really so strange. I actually think that people sometimes don't believe the symptoms that they're getting because it does mess around with your head. It messes around with your mood. And then if they have a doctor that is relatively unsympathetic or doesn't know about long COVID, they get dismissed. Are there other people in the same boat? There's thousands. Most of these people are people that are not officially recorded in the system. Paul Garner. Now, given, as he said, that the NHS doesn't have good records on these people, how do you find out the scale of the problem? Well, one way is using the UK's COVID symptom tracker app, which has got millions of willing participants logging the symptoms they're experiencing every day. Tim Spector from King's College London leads the team that's been looking through the data. We noticed this after about the first month of collecting symptoms, and we found that there was a group of people who just kept logging. The average duration of symptoms was between 10 and 12 days, but around 10% of them had symptoms that lasted for over a month. Perhaps one in 20 still have symptoms three months on. One in 20 people, when you think of perhaps 3 million people infected in the UK, is a lot of people with debilitating symptoms. Yeah, that, that's a huge proportion. What kind of symptoms were these people getting? Well, we ask in the app about 19 different symptoms, and the ones that seem to be uh, coming up strongest were fatigue, a really severe fatigue that initially meant they really could hardly get out of bed. And that would often cycle as well. So it would improve and then get worse. Muscle aches was another common thing that has persisted. And shortness of breath. The other one, which was rather strange, which occurred in about a fifth of these people, was loss of smell. And this seems to be lasting months in some people, which doesn't sound very important until you start thinking about how that really affects your ability to appreciate food and drink and uh, can make you very depressed if you lose it. But people were presenting with a whole range of different symptoms on top of that. We actually had three people that after three months were still having intermittent fevers. Wow. Which is really strange. And we had about 8% of people that had rashes that would appear on their fingers and toes. This weirdness of symptoms and variety is now starting to be understood because it looks like There's different antibody responses in all these different subgroups. But I think as time goes on, we'll we'll see this not as necessarily one disease, but as perhaps six or 10 sub-diseases or sub-responses to this identical virus. Tim Spector. It's a bizarre illness indeed, isn't it? And with us is uh, Oxford-based GP Helen Salisbury. She's been seeing patients with these symptoms is that a pretty fair summary, Helen? You're, you're seeing people with those sorts Absolutely. of symptoms? Absolutely. And I would say the most common symptom is the fatigue, the just not being able to do stuff. I've got patients who previously they've been really fit. There would be sort of people who'd go running several times a week. And so actually they weathered the initial illness not so badly. Certainly they didn't need to go and get oxygen at hospital or anything like that. And as a consequence, they never had a a swab, so they never got a proper diagnosis. But now, months down the line, they still get absolutely exhausted if they walk a quarter of a mile to the local shop and then have to rest. I've got patients who say, 
I was okay this morning, but after I'd had my shower, I had to sit down for an hour and a half. That's no way of getting back to life. And how quickly after people, I don't want to say recover, because they haven't, but how quickly after the acute symptoms do people notice that they're getting these bizarre constellations of symptoms and, and particularly this fatigue? I think it's a little bit difficult to know because for many of my patients, they didn't ever contact me, particularly the people who were ill in April. There was a big message going out which was saying, don't call anyone unless you're really, really, really sick. It's a different pattern for each patient, I think, and they each have a different set of symptoms. So for some, the thing that's really bothering them still is being out of breath. I've got one patient who's having fevers, persistent fevers all the time, which is really difficult because everyone thinks she's still infectious, which she isn't, but she's still really affected by those fevers and it's stopping her doing things. When you say that you know she's not still infected, how do you know that? Because we've, uh, the, the reason for asking this question, then. the reason for asking yeah. this question is Paul Garner, who we were hearing from just now, the infectious mm, diseases mm. doctor who described his experience. He said he had an antibody test and it was positive, but he was interested in whether or not he still yeah, had I virus mean, in him. It's really difficult to tell. This particular person, I think, has had swab tests that prove she's not carrying the viral RNA anymore. And some of the patients have positive antibody tests, but not all of them. And that's also a really difficult thing for people because if they didn't have a swab in the first place, although they had symptoms that, you know, they came on at the right time and they had a really convincing set of symptoms that you think, yep, that's definitely COVID, they don't now have any antibodies because we know that some people's antibodies wane very quickly. So it's, it's actually really difficult to tell. And I think um, somebody else was talking about how difficult it is if GPs don't understand what's going on. And if you have no swab to start with and no antibodies now and a collection of really, really weird symptoms, it's unfortunate that quite a few patients are not getting a fully sympathetic or empathetic response from their GPs. We'll dwell a little bit more on testing a bit later on in the programme to explore some mm. of those deficiencies mm. that you've highlighted, Helen. Have you noticed, mm. though, in the patients that come to see you with these symptoms, are there any general trends of the kinds of people who are presenting like this? And you can say they fit a particular group, or is it just all and sundry? All ages, both sexes, young, all old, no all difference? All and sundry. I've probably got more slightly younger patients, actually. Not so many patients in their... 60s and 70s but more patients in their 30s and 40s I would say I mean that may just be the group of patients I'm seeing one of the good things is that I'm just beginning to see some of these patients saying do you know what I feel a bit better and it's not just for a day or two I've actually felt better for a whole week Helen, thank you for ending on that very optimistic note. That's GP Helen Salisbury with her account of the patient she's been seeing with the long tail of coronavirus infection. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions.
This week we're learning about long COVID, the condition where coronavirus sufferers recover from the acute infection but then go on to develop fatigue and other very bizarre symptoms that can last months. And hints are starting to emerge about the damage or complications that are going on in multiple different organs in these patients. And a group of medical scientists in Germany have recently discovered ongoing heart issues in a significant proportion of people that only ever had this mild COVID. Cardiologist Valentina Puntman explains. We investigated patients that have recently recovered from COVID-19 illness. So we had a very, very deep look at their hearts. And in these patients, we found that many, many of them, even if they didn't really have a rough course of the original illness, they still had persistent, ongoing cardiac inflammation, a little bit like a flu of the heart. How many of them had this kind of inflammation? We scanned a total of 100 patients, 78 of those have had some findings in the heart. Of these, 60 had very active inflammation. Inflammation within the heart muscle, something that we call myocarditis, as well as inflammation of the lining of the heart, pericarditis. How long is this after they were originally sick? The average time from their original positive test was 71 days. Wow, that's a long time since they had this you know, positive test. What, what's going on? This is the question that obviously I can only speculate on. And it is not due to an ongoing infection of the heart muscle. So it is not that virus remains within the uh, heart cells. The body itself is understanding the inflammation of the heart as something that it has to fight against or tries to control it. But this is obviously, at this present point, hypothesis. Do you you know whether this kind of heart inflammation might link to any specific symptoms that people are feeling, you know, months after they were supposed to have got better from COVID? That is very difficult to say because heart inflammation does not present with specific symptoms. Being not fit, especially young patients, this is one of those symptoms that definitely can make us aware of it. However, inflammation takes a long time to present itself with what we call textbook symptoms, chest pain, shortness of breath, the swellings of the legs. But in general, then, this might be kind of a hint as to why these people are still unwell. Absolutely. This is definitely one of the things that we should look for very early and very fast, if possible. In cardiac inflammation, trying to be very sporty, very fast is probably not the right thing. And I think if any message can be given at the present point is that we just need to give the heart as well as the rest of the body time to heal. Valentina Puntman from the University of Frankfurt, explaining her study from the journal JAMA Cardiology. Now, this sort of inflammation is a strong hint that the body's own immune system may be a key player in this long-tail post-COVID syndrome. And with us to discuss it is the University of Cambridge's immunologist, Claire Bryant. So, Claire, what do you think is going on? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris, and somewhat complicated by the fact that uh, we're really just beginning to understand what's happening with the immune response per se. But basically, inflammation is the uh, way in which the body tries to control infections. 
and therefore the production of inflammation should be a protective response against the virus. But what seems to be happening with this infection is that the body is mounting an excessive response and in the longer tail, presumably what you're getting is some long-term inflammatory response that somehow is not switching off in the way you would normally expect it to after an infection. So we're getting effects which are short-term. The virus goes in, it does some damage, you get inflammation because it's there. That's successful and gets rid of the virus. But it's almost like the vestiges of that inflammatory response just remain grumbling on indefinitely and damage other tissues. That seems to be what's happening and that's really quite concerning because one of the things we know is that the virus has a, is able to attack epithelial cells, so that's cells lining the lung, the gut, the blood vessels. There's quite a lot of evidence suggesting that infected cells of the lining vessels is communicating with immune cells and this then is causing and triggering inflammation and this can actually cause reprogramming of different immune cells and presumably there's a reprogramming going on which is then leading to the unbalanced immune response that we're seeing. Why is it so pronounced in some people and other people don't even know they were even infected? I don't think we really know that at all. It's really not clear at all why some people get nothing and other people get this kind of long tail effect. Do you think it's the virus or do you think it's the individual? I guess it's more likely to be an individual response in that the virus is is going to have pretty similar effects wherever it goes. It just depends how you as an individual respond to that virus and potentially a host of genetic factors that we just don't know about. In Cambridge, the Department of Medicine at Addenbrooke's Hospital have been running a, a very important study where they've been collecting samples from extremely large numbers of patients who have coronavirus of a range of different severities and they're following through those patients and, and looking actually at the aftermath as, as well as when they're acutely unwell. I wrote to Professor Ken Smith today. He's on holiday, so he was unable to join us on the programme. But I asked him, could you tell us a bit about the findings? And he said that one new observation they've made is that about 28 to 50 days after people first get symptoms with coronavirus, people with even moderate disease who have recovered and gone home have changes to the levels of white blood cells in their blood. And those changes don't seem to be resolving. They've got some cells which are higher, many cells which are much lower. And he said to me that this raises the possibility that there could be some kind of ongoing immune abnormality after COVID-19 that's driving some of the symptoms, including the long-term symptoms we're seeing. And the fact that some of the, the cell levels are very low, he said to me, is there a possibility of a post-COVID immune deficiency syndrome? And actually, it wouldn't be so unusual for that to happen, would it? Because in the last year, we've seen a paper published where when people catch measles virus, measles goes through and wipes the immune slate clean. People lose all of their immune memory and they're immune to measles, but then they're not immune to anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think that's extremely interesting. And if this is true in COVID as well, and this data would support that as a possibility, a sort of immune amnesia, then that, that's extremely interesting and, and really speaks to us as thinking really carefully. Do you take a post-COVID patient if they've also had their immune slate wiped clean? Then we need to think about boosting them for vaccines against other infectious diseases to protect them against secondary infections, tertiary infections. That to one side for a second. Why do you think that 
people are presenting with the symptoms that they are. Helen and Paul, who we heard from earlier in the programme, are both describing this profound fatigue and a fatigue that you don't know is there until you try and do something and then it kicks in. Why would the immune system produce symptoms like that? If you have a generalised inflammation, inflammation in your heart or you've got inflammation in your lungs, you probably will feel a fatigue because what happens is the function of those tissues is compromised. You get uh, less efficient cardiac function, you're getting less oxygen delivery to your brain and your, your muscles, so therefore you will be tired. If you're getting less efficient respiratory system function because you've got lung damage or lung inflammation, then you'll get less oxygen delivery and that will make you fatigued. Inflammation in uh, nervous cells, in cells of the brain, will lead to potentially feeling fatigued. So there's a whole host of factors here whereby inflammation is on the whole. If you've got unregulated inflammation, which is no longer fighting the infection, it will make you feel bad. Inflammation makes you feel bad. Well, that may indeed be what's going on with the next person we're going to hear from. This is Barbara Melville. She had coronavirus and has subsequently had long tail symptoms, very similar to Paul, but many of them mirroring some of the points that uh, Claire's been making. It's been a roller coaster. I've had symptoms since the middle of March. Started with mild cough and congestion, nothing too concerning. Fast forward a couple of weeks later and I can't breathe properly. At one point I was unable to walk. I called 111 and they put my symptoms down to anxiety. A few minutes later I collapsed radiating with heat and had to get an ambulance. Went to hospital at that point, diagnosed with COVID-19, but they were unable to test me. For the next 10 weeks or so, I was bedbound with breathing difficulties, low oxygen saturations, tinnitus, diarrhea, dizziness, nausea, you name it, I had it. But the main problems, which continue to this day, are breathing difficulties. So I can't actually walk more than a couple of minutes now. I used to be an avid hill walker, martial artist. And now I can't get to the end of my street. And you're talking to me now. Is this an effort as well that's going to take it out of you and maybe come back to hit you tomorrow? I haven't really had that kind of post-viral fatigue people talk about for a while. So I'm, I'm lucky that I am the admin of a support group. And they are definitely seeing this pattern of what we call boom and bust, whereby they do something and then there's immediate effect. Personally, that's not what I'm seeing, which is why I'm a little nervous about you know, the blanket label of post-viral fatigue for everybody. I think that may be the case for some people, but it hasn't been the case for me. Have you had the antibody test? When I was in hospital, they were unable to do it. They said they would get into trouble. And I've decided not to have an antibody test at present. My feeling is they're not robust enough. And I'm concerned that, you know, if I were to have a positive test, that it may have stigma attached to it, um, rather like HIV did back in the 90s. I've heard from a few different people that some of their symptoms are like weirdly brain related. Yes, this is an interesting one. People talk about brain fog. and That's a collective way of describing memory loss or that thing where you, you put your laundry in the toilet instead of the laundry basket. <laughs> a lot of that sort of thing. But it would be really good to get some you know, clarity on the neurological side. Barbara Melville, uh, Claire, Many of the symptoms that Barbara describes are quite acute symptoms. Do you think that she's got sort of injury to various tissues caused by the virus directly and she's suffering the effects of that? Or do you think she's got these 
subsequent immunological effects going on? Or do you think it could be both? A combination of both, but most likely immunological because inflammation leads to damage. Long-term damage is, is exactly the kind of symptoms that she's, the reasons for the symptoms that she's describing. And what about the prognosis? In people who have this, Helen did say earlier that some of her patients are saying, I'm beginning to turn the corner. But once you've got these footprints in your immune system caused by an infection like COVID, are they there for keeps or will this eventually sort of put itself right? We have to hope that it will eventually solve itself, Chris. But at the moment, that's a big unknown. Helen's giving us some hope, but really, we just don't know. Claire, thank you. Claire Bryant uh, from the University of Cambridge. Claire is staying with us through the programme. We'll be talking to her a bit later on about getting a test for COVID. So far in the programme, we've learned about the condition of long COVID and we've heard some possible explanations for what might be underlying them. But now we're going to turn our attention to the more unusual symptoms, as well as taking a look at some options for testing and treatment. Barbara Melville asked us to provide some clarity on the neurological side of this disorder. And here to do that is University of Cambridge neuropathologist Kieran Allenson. Kieran, how can the coronavirus affect your brain? Well, I think it definitely can affect the brain. And I think it can potentially do that by a variety of different mechanisms. Potentially, the coronavirus could actually infect the brain tissue itself and cause inflammation, uh, what we might call encephalitis in the brain tissue. It might be that the immune system causes excessive inflammation generally throughout the body, including the brain, and maybe the virus doesn't actually enter the brain itself, but it it sets up an immune response that causes inflammation in the brain. Now, it's it's quite hard, isn't it, for viruses and other stuff to get into your brain, because obviously that's something that the body desperately doesn't want. If if that's That's actually what was going on, how would that be happening? So I think there's a variety of possible routes into the brain that viruses do take. For example, the olfactory nerve is where the herpes virus, herpes simplex virus, infects the brain via. It may cross from the blood, so virus in the bloodstream can cross across the blood-brain barrier, which is the tightest barrier in the human body. It's, it's a barrier that deliberately doesn't let much across or only selectively lets certain things across. And it might be that virus can get into... The nerves, the nerves that come off the spinal cord, that come off the brain stem, travel backwards in the nerves and get into the brain that way. Do you have any evidence either way? I mean, you're a neuropathologist. What have you seen? I've examined um, the brains from a few people who had um, severe COVID-19, and I've seen a variety of different changes. I've certainly seen what we call encephalitis, which is inflammation of the brain. So that's um, white blood cells and other immune cells in the brain tissue causing inflammation and damage. But I didn't actually detect the virus in the brain tissue. So I don't know whether the virus was there and it sets up this inflammation or whether the virus was never there, but it it sets up the inflammation within the body and that can cause damage to the brain without the virus ever being directly within the brain tissue. There's no good evidence yet that the COVID-19 virus can directly infect neurons and other brain cells, but it certainly is possible. The other way I've seen the virus infect the brain is by causing strokes. It might damage the the cells that line blood vessels, and the brain's obviously full of blood vessels, little tiny blood vessels, and it can cause them to clot off, form strokes or little bits of brain tissue that die. And that might be related to the fact that the virus causes this hypercoagulation or this makes your blood more sticky and more liable to clot. 
So I've certainly seen both forms of, of brain damage in COVID-19 patients. If you had to put money down on anything, what would be your bet? Because people like Paul have talked about, he, he actually asked us to ask uh, someone like you. He says, I've had things like wild swings in mood. Sometimes I wake in tears, feel absolutely sad. By the afternoon, I'm elated, almost high, ready to conquer the world. Um, no history of mental illness. If you had to put a bet down, what, what do you think is going on? Is the virus, you know, getting into his brain or, or what? Well, so it's been increasingly recognised that it definitely does affect the brain and causes sort of brain symptoms, neurological symptoms, and something called encephalopathy, where the brain just isn't, generally isn't working very well. I think that when they've tested the CSF from patients with neurological symptoms, they've, they've and, very and what's, rarely... What's, Kieran, what's CSF? Well, so the cerebral spinal fluid, it bathes the brain and spinal cord and sort of provides it nutrients, etc. Uh-huh. And we can test that for the virus. And on patients where they've done that, there hasn't been very many where they've actually detected the nucleic acid of the virus in the cerebral spinal fluid. My guess is more that it's a what we call a parainfectious process. So the, it's due to the infection, but not directly due to the presence of the virus. So I think the virus causes this cytokine storm, which is this massive overreaction of our immune system in susceptible people. And that can damage blood vessels throughout the body. That can cause the blood-brain barrier to become more leaky. So inflammation that normally wouldn't get into the brain, or white blood cells that would normally not pass into the brain, might be able to get across this leakier blood-brain barrier. Interesting. That's maybe the brain itself. Um, In terms of other neurological stuff, Paul and lots of other people that I've spoken to talk about this fizzing feeling. Paul says it's in his arms and legs. Other people say it's in their skin at all times. Some call it buzzing. Some call it peppercorn feeling. What do you think might be going on there? One of the surprising things that's come out about COVID-19 is it can damage the peripheral nervous system, which is all the tiny little nerves throughout your skin that provide your sensation. This has emerged as a real feature post-COVID of um, damage to peripheral nerves, causing changes in the sensation of the skin. So maybe loss of feeling, what we call anaesthesia, but also just changes in feeling, so unusual or maybe painful feelings just from light touch, etc. Kieran, thank you so much. That's Kieran Allenson and a paper by Kieran, as well as our very own Chris Smith, which is on the possibility of the coronavirus using this vagus nerve, uh, a nerve that uh, goes into the brain to infect the brain. That's recently been accepted by a journal called Neuropathology and Applied Neurobiology, and that paper should be out soon. Well, let's go back to the immunology of all of this. With us is uh, Claire Bryant, who is an immunologist at the University of Cambridge. And Claire, one of the things which has been at the heart of, of many of the debates, discussions and arguments all the way through the coronavirus pandemic is testing. Initially, everyone said, we need an antibody test because then we can work out who's really had it. Now we've got an antibody test and people are still confused, not least scientists. So what's going on? Yeah, it's um, it's, it's a bit of a uh, disappointment, isn't it? Antibodies, of course, are made over a period of time during the time course of an infection. So timing of the antibody test is absolutely critical. So it appears that in the first week of infection, using an antibody test, you only pick up about 30% of the people. This is because your antibodies are just beginning to be generated. Then by about weeks two to three, where the antibody levels are peaking, and at that point, about 70% of people will be positive. After that, we're, we're a little unclear because it depends how long the antibodies last for and how sensitive the antibody test is. 
It's a little bit disappointing because one hoped it would be a little bit more clear cut than that. But it, it's beginning to appear that the antibody test is not going to be the magic silver bullet that um, our prime minister hoped it would be. Researchers in Sweden recently said, well, antibodies are not necessarily the be all and end all. And actually, white blood cells, T cells, which also help to fight off infection, play a massively important role. And some people might have no antibodies, but lots of T cells. What are they getting at? And would you agree with them? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's two sides to every story within the immune system. So what the T cells do is they, they detect, pick up and destroy infected cells. T cells also inform the B cells and the B cells are the cells that generate the antibodies. So it will also help pile out more antibodies to attack the virus as well. So anything that stimulates the T cell response will help with generating protective immunity against this virus. So antibodies and the T cells are actually critical to generating a potentially protective immune response. Um, But again, I say that with the caveat that we hope that this is what's going to happen and we hope that this is what a vaccine should do is stimulate antibody responses and t-cell responses but as yet we don't actually know because we haven't got that data yet if we look at other coronaviruses because there are four common human coronaviruses that come every winter and they cause common cold type symptoms one of them infects cells via exactly the same route as this new coronavirus So can we get some clues from how the immune system responds to that to inform what the likely long-term response to this new one will be? You can get antibodies against that particular coronavirus and that will help protect you against colds for a while. The trouble is the protection doesn't seem to last very long. And so there's a lot of discussion about if you use a vaccine, will you need to be regularly boosted? If so, how frequently? because the protection you get against the cold-causing coronaviruses doesn't seem to last for a tremendously long time. Claire, thank you. And I suppose one piece of good news is that the data we have so far from some of the vaccines that have been tested, they do suggest that both T-cells and antibodies are produced in response to those vaccines, which is encouraging because it sounds like from what Claire's saying, that's what we need. Claire Bryant there. Thanks to our other guests this week, Helen Salisbury and Kieran Allenson, as well as Paul Garner, Tim Spector, Valentina Puntman, and Barbara Melville. And let's hope that there is both more research to understand the condition and opportunities soon to support these patients at the same time as those who are coming out of critical care. Finally now, uh, we've just got time for Question of the Week. And this week, Adam Murphy has been searching the files for an answer to this question from Johnny. Does burying paper in a landfill sequester carbon? Makes sense in a way. Trees are in the ground, trees make paper. If you put that paper back in the ground, you're helping out. Right? Well, Sean Fitzgerald from the Royal Academy of Engineering and visiting professor at the University of Cambridge might stop us from barking up the wrong tree. Carbon sequestration is the process by which carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere and locked away in various forms, such as being buried underground, converted to minerals such as carbonates, used to raise the carbon content of soils, or stored as wood for future generations. It is very natural to pose the question, does burying paper in a landfill sequester carbon? One might first think that given that trees contain carbon, and trees were felled to make the paper, if we could keep it in landfill that might be a solution. However, there is more to it than that. We need to consider two things. The results of making paper in the first place, 
And then what happens if we put it in landfill? Of course, as with so many things in science, the truth isn't quite so simple. The tree loss caused by the manufacture of paper is staggering. About 35% of trees felled worldwide are used to feed the paper industry. We're not replacing these at the rate we are felling them, so our use of paper isn't helping here. What about landfill once we have used the paper? Well, paper doesn't stay in the same condition. Over time, it will decompose and release methane and carbon dioxide. Both gases are a real problem. Methane is more potent as a greenhouse gas, although it doesn't last as long in the atmosphere as CO2. But nevertheless, it lasts for years, so it's a real problem. The simple answer is to use less paper. Thank you, Sean, for digging up an answer to that one for us. Next week, we're looking out for an answer to this question from Lionel. I installed a sensor that switches on a light when it detects a sound. However, when I clap my hands, the light appears to come on fractions of a second before I hear the sound. Does it take my brain longer to process the sound than the light? What do you think? Email chris at thenakedscientist.com or come join in the debate on our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. And if you have a question of your own, we love getting them. Send them in by email or there's a simple web form on our site, nakedscientist.com slash question. And that is it for this week on The Naked Scientists. As always, if you're looking for papers that we have talked about, you can find them on our website along with the transcripts for the interviews that we have done. And next time, how well can you understand the people around you? We look at everything that goes into communication, from your words to your voice, and some things you might not be thinking about. Plus, how might COVID-19 get in the way? The Naked Scientist is brought to you by the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I've been Phil Sansom, and from all of us here at the Naked Scientist team, take care and goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.